Well, a reading this morning, a reading from the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. We don't know what side of the pond you're from, we would say, but Habakkuk on... Uh, it, to help you out, uh, Nahum, once you get there, it's a book over, and then I think Zephaniah is the book after it. So um, Habakkuk, if someone has a pew Bible next to you, just uh, ask them, hey, what number are you? <laughs> is, that, uh, is that page on there, friend? <laughs> and I'll try to turn there in my John MacArthur study Bible. <laughs> we'll be reading uh, verses 12 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. So Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Amen. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. You may be seated and let us pray. Lord, now let the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight as your Holy Spirit takes up an unworthy servant to do what you have called him to do. I know that wherever you call someone to, you provide the grace sufficient to do what you've called them to do. And so, Lord, we all rest on your strength. We want to hear your voice over and against the voice of just a mere man. And so speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Well, this morning we return, obviously, to our church-wide exposition of Habakkuk after a two-week interval break. And as already has been said a few weeks back when we started Habakkuk, that this particular little prophet is a man who prophesies to the northern kingdom of Judah in a way that shows that he has a holy burden from the Lord. Yeah, I think he has a burden of a godly sort. In chapter 1, verse 1, He begins by saying he's Habakkuk the prophet who has an oracle. And that Hebrew word Massa, which is M-A-S-S-A when transliterated into the English, is a word that usually translates burden in the Old Testament. Sometimes it can translate as oracle. But the reality of this burden is a burden that he ties to his prophetic office. I'm a prophet and I have an oracle or a burden. The prophets 
were men of like nature with us. And that's actually taken straight out of the book of James in the New Testament, right? So Elijah was a man of like nature with us, and so it had to be with Habakkuk. So these prophets were ordinary men who received extraordinary revelations from God. You could say these were natural men, given supernatural visions of God and often of what he was going to do with his covenant people, and sometimes with the future of the whole earth when you read all the prophetic writings. And so you could say that these regular men who serve the Lord were sometimes given supernatural revelations from the Lord, and these supernatural revelations came to them as they lived their lives. And really you see that reality that that, that, that it wasn't just like these men always went into some kind of trance state and then they saw visions. There are certain prophetic writings. Read Ezekiel, the first three chapters, some of the things like Isaiah 6, when Isaiah's in the temple and he sees the Lord. And sometimes you see these things. Moses had moments like that, it seems like, in his ministry. But what we really see here, though, is often the prophets are just going about their regular service to the Lord. And something in life becomes the medium through which God grabs their attention and gives them an oracle. And for Habakkuk, his book opens up with a complaint that he has. I mean, immediately, we saw last week that, that he's a man who, who suddenly was all stirred, I mean, two weeks ago, that he was a man who was all stirred up about the condition of the nation of Israel. He was a man who looked around him and saw that Israel had perverted justice in their land. And they had done so. How? Well, he says things in Habakkuk 1 like the law was paralyzed. And so there was a, a, a sinning against the known laws of God. And if the law of God is sinned against, if the law of God is considered negligible by a people, well, then justice doesn't come forth. And when he looks at all of these people, he uses language in Habakkuk 1 that's very covenantal by, 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 uh, by nature when he says, you know, when he's complaining to the Lord, he's like, Lord, why are things this way? Why do you idly look on as people are treasonous towards you? And he's really burdened for the moral life of his nation. Well, I think we often meet with people in life who are burdened. But I meet with people who are usually burdened about carnal things. They usually have some burden that's been dropped into their life because of the natural consequences of their sin. But then sometimes I meet people who have a, a different kind of burden. Maybe it's more cultural in nature. They have a burden for things like educating children, which can be a very good thing. They have a burden for helping the poor, which is a very good thing. But very rarely do I meet with someone who has a spiritual burden. You see, as I've explained, these prophets were given burdens from the Lord. This was the Lord sharing his heart with these men about what was going on. This is what the, the Lord was thinking about concerning Judah at this time. And when you do meet with men or with women who have a spiritual burden, they shake things up around you. I remember the first time I met my mentor, Brother Tim LaFleur. All that would ever come out of that man's mouth, it seemed, was I'm going to teach you how to be a disciple who makes disciples. 
remember standing in a room at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and there was at least 500 people in attendance for a particular conference, and Tim was asked to speak, which was a rarity for him, but he got up there, and one of the guys before him said, before Brother Tim comes up here, everyone, I want, I want to ask a question. The Bible says in the book of Romans to give honor to whom honor is due within the context of the church. How many of you have been directly discipled by Tim LaFleur? About 250 people stood up in that room. And then he said, let me ask again, how many of you have been discipled by a disciple of Tim LaFleur? The rest of the room was standing. The impact of a life with a holy burden. This guy had personally invested in over 500 people through some of his disciples directly himself. And we gave him honor that day. We didn't worship him, but we gave him honor. I remember the first time I met Cindy Collins in Slidell, Louisiana. A woman who had been born again after six abortions. Cindy Collins, when you cut her, she bleeds for the unborn now in her ministry. All she wants to do is save children. She's always before Congress. She's always in churches trying to help them understand the full weight of what it means to be pro-life because of the Lord Jesus. And I just love spending time with someone so sold out for the cause of justice. Or the first time I met my, we used to be closer, but he's too famous right now. You'll know his name, David Platt. Remember the first time I met David? His holy burden is evident. If you breathe in his direction, he'll say something about missions to you, right? Go out, reach the nation, send us great commission, great commission. People with a holy burden, they change things about you. You can't ignore them. I think Habakkuk was such a man. He was burdened for the people of God and for their health and for revival. And he, he was so burdened that he, he asked God why things were the way that they were. He, his burden really put him on a, on a personal journey. And as he prays and as he complains... He complains, as we saw a few weeks ago, reverently, but realistically. He's really burdened to the fact where he doesn't even understand why the world is the way that it is. He's a man, I see him in my mind's eye pacing the floor of his, of his house, wondering why things aren't the way they're supposed to be and what more could he do and maybe I need to go all the way to God with all of this anxiety and he begins to pray. Well, God answers his prayer. And we saw that God astounds him. And God tells him in Habakkuk 1, you're going to be astounded at this. You think that I'm aloof from the condition of the people of Judah? Matter of fact, Habakkuk, I'm working a work that's going to make your head spin. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And they're going to come in and they're going to deal with my people's sins. Man, if you thought Habakkuk was burdened before, he's burdened now. And his second complaint rises out of that information that the Lord gives him about Babylon. Well, in the opening of our text, what we see is we see that Habakkuk is in a place where he's between a, a really a rock and a hard place, as we would call it. Because Habakkuk is saying, wait, I know the Babylonians. As Chapter 1, they're infamous for their 
cruelty and ruthlessness. And they are pagan. They have no covenant with God. And yet you're going to raise those people up, Lord, to come deal with your people here? And he's trying to deal with the reality that he sees of, wait, sovereign God who is good to Israel is going to judge Israel through other means. It seems also most Habakkuk thought like judgment was going to come through some other medium. He already had that made up in his head. Now, I don't know, maybe he thought snakes were going to come out and bite the people again, like in the wilderness wanderings or but, 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 but when he hears that, 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 that an evil nation is coming to invade Judah, the Babylonians, it does make his head spin. How does God raise up these really wicked people to deal with nominally wicked people? <laughs> well, the way he starts to deal with that, even emotionally in his own heart, really shows in his praying here in our passage. He, shows, he starts praying in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And in one breath here, he names three primary realities about who God is. Namely, he names the eternality of God, the holiness of God, and the loving kindness of his God. And it seems that Habakkuk does so in order to comfort his own heart in light of the new knowledge he has about the oncoming invasion of the Babylonians. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, put it this way, the prophet, having received of the Lord that which he is now to deliver to the people, turns to God and again addresses himself to him for the ease of his own mind and under the burden that he now saw. But still he is full of complaints. If he looks about him, he sees nothing but violence done by Israel. If he looks before him, he will see nothing but violence that will be done against Israel. And it is hard to say which is the more melancholy in his sight. His thoughts of both, he here pours out before the Lord in prayer. It's our duty as Christians to be affected both with the iniquities and with the calamities of the church of God and of the times and places wherein we live. But we must take heed lest we grow peevish in our resentments, carry them too far so as to entertain hard thoughts about God or to lose the comfort of our communion with him because of these things. And so Habakkuk immediately addresses God as the everlasting God in light of his new information. Again, Henry says, Our God is from everlasting. This is what he pleads with God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? See, it's a matter of great continual comfort to God's people that under the troubles of this present life, that their God is from everlasting. For this intimates that the eternity of his nature is from everlasting and he will be to everlasting. And we must have recourse to this first principle when we see temporal things thus. And they're discouraging. Thus we look to eternity, to the eternal one, and we have hope and help sufficient in a God who is not seen that is eternal. And so Habakkuk, in order to find some kind of rock in the midst of the confusing world that he finds himself suddenly in, in God's providence, he goes straight to the heart of God, the attributes of God, and he names the eternality of God as his first rock in his soul, as the first ballast in the tipping ship of his emotions. And he looks at the eternal God and he says, all right, there is a God and a space wherein he exists that has made complete sense out of what's happening here. There is no 
cosmic senselessness because of the eternality of God. God has ordained things from eternity. And I need to look into the unseen God right now. When everything I see is discouraging, I need to look at the one who is never discouraged and who knows all things and is ordaining them to come to pass in their appointed time. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul does this for Christians when he says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're temporary, they're transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So be sure, beloved, that when earth and time don't make sense, there's a perspective from the eternal perspective of God that has already made sense of it all. God is eternal, therefore he works from and for eternity in the lives of his people. And this is a rock for us as we walk through life with our limited view. Habakkuk realizes God is working from and for eternity in his life. Therefore, he knows he can ultimately rest in the perspective of God, even though it be different from his perspective. He goes on to say here that the Lord is my holy one. The Lord is my holy one. And this intimates that the prophet loved God as a holy God. He loved him for the sake of his own holiness. Henry again says, he is mine because he is a holy one, and therefore he will be my sanctifier, my savior, because he is my holy one. Men are unholy, but my God is holy. So the God of eternity here is also the God of holiness. And as he works out his plan from eternity in time, he works it now we see in Habakkuk's mind to perfect his people in holiness, to fit them for the eternity that God dwells in and will bring them to. He ordains correction and reproof in time for their perfection in in future glory. We know the Lord does this. Again, the apostolic circle writes about this in books like Hebrews chapter 12. And here we see uh, in chapter 12 at verse 5, the, the apostle or the apostle's friend who writes in the book of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chases every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we see that the eternal God, who's working out a cosmic plan ordained from before the foundations of the earth, that sometimes we look around and understand, can't understand all the bits and bobs of it and why there's so much darkness inside of the, uh, the plan of the God who is light and we are perplexed by all this. We have to understand that often those dark tones and those darker themes are used to discipline God's sons and God's daughters. Why? so that they might share in his holiness, so that they might be subject to him in all of their spirits. 
How quick we are to forget that present pain brings future gain in God's kingdom. All is suspended upon God's eternity in the world, but also all is suspended upon God's holiness. The third third thing we see here is the prophet brings up God's covenant love or faithfulness. And we see this in the use of the possessive pronouns. You are mine, mine holy one. We will not die. He has the sense of belonging to his God. He says, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. O rock, you have established them for reproof. He, he has a sense of interest in the Lord that he is related to him. And then he thinks of the covenant made. And he says boldly, we shall not die. How can he say that? How can he answer to God this way? Well, we know that Israel was in a covenant with God. We know that God had made them wonderful promises in the covenant that he made with them. And the promise of an offspring to Abram is probably the most foundational and primary of all the promises God made to them. And that many nations would come, that they would possess the land of Canaan. And they knew at at this point when Habakkuk is writing that there is going to be one who comes, who's going to sit from the throne of David and be to everlasting. And so Habakkuk knows not all the promises are yet fulfilled. This covenant people, yes, we're going to be invaded by the Babylonians, but it will not be a final end of us. There will be great judgment, but there will be a remnant of the people delivered. He knows this in his heart. He's he's wrestling with the present pain that he sees that he alone now knows is coming to invade Israel. And he, he deals with all of the knowledge of who God is. He declares the person of God. He takes strength in his inner being. And now he has the strength as he's as he's pressed into the eternality of God, the holiness of God, now that he, he sees the heart of God, he has a clearer vision for what the hand of God is going to do in the life of Israel. We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment. There's a word connected to eternality. You've ordained things, God, from before the foundation of the world. This comes as from a just God's hand. You've ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Saying, I see now, you're treating us justly, you're treating us according to your eternality, and you're treating us because we need to be reproved and corrected, but you will not kill us. You will correct us. So Habakkuk is a wise man now. He sees truth and he applies it rightly to a situation. God will bring his promises to his covenant people about but he will do so because he's working from and for eternity. They will live. They will not die. But still, even though he comes to this great conclusion, the next part of the text I find very comforting. Because all of a sudden, it seems like he's questioning God again. And he is. It just doesn't seem that way. He is. He asks, like, you who are purer than eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The reason this comforts me is because even after I have sought the Lord and sought to know uh, more of his heart through a particular painful providence in my life, I still have questions that often remain even after I get insight. I think anyone who knows the Lord can, can testify to this. You have something really painful happen to you. and You pray about it. You seek the Lord and you seek godly counsel about how to deal with it. And you do gain some insight. You do get to know the Lord better through it. 
But yet, not all the questions are answered, even with the insight that you have. And some people go to their grave with a lot of questions that are only answered when they see the Lord face to face. I'll never forget the day I was with my ministry mentor, Brother Tim discipled me, but my ministry mentor was Pete Sharpenshay. I remember once I was in Brother Pete's uh, office, and I was going through a really hard time. And I was just regaling Pete with the problem. And he said, Ryan, we'll talk about some immediate things you can do. But over all of this, I want you to, I want you to think this way. Whenever you stand in the presence of Christ one day and he judges your life, he's going to have put the pin down of him authoring your story. And he's going to let you look over your shoulder at how from eternity he had ordained days like the days you're in to ultimately bring you home safely, perfect, and complete, even though you can't understand it now. You will later, brother. He said, now let's deal with some immediate things you can do. And when he put it in the eternal perspective, it was like an immediate rock and a ballast for my heart was like, God's only going to do good to me. Even when it seems like he's going to do evil. But I still have some lingering questions and pains. And so here we see God's prophet does. And there are some people who are so rocked by their questions that they forget the eternal rock who is their Lord. But we don't have to be so forgetful in our trials. It comforts me that the inscrutability of God was a problem even for the prophets of God who had literal visions of his name. And, and, and I think another reason it comforts me is not just because of what I just stated, but it's also because, you know, you hear things like Peter talk about Paul, how Paul, um, he uh, was given uh, revelations of God that were wonderful. And Peter says they're hard to understand, which is kind of comforting for a preacher who has to study the Bible all the time. But he also goes on to say about Paul that uh, Paul, was, Paul was very wise. Well, we know the wisdom that came from Paul Ultimately, it didn't come from Paul. It came from the revelation of God. And, and, and Paul talks about his revelation in a, in a passage in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about how uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations I receive of God, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan sent to torment me. And so what do we see here? The greater the revelation, the greater he was potentially to be taken by, the greater potential he had to be taken by conceit. And so I think often the Lord leaves us with unanswered questions so that we're not destroyed in arrogance and conceit. I heard a man of God say this week that the true Christian, you always know him because he walks with a limp instead of a strut. Jacob wrestling in prayer with God over the blessing that he knew he needed but didn't quite understand and God blesses him but what happens? Jacob has a limp when he comes out of the presence of God. And so often we God's people go around limping because of the hard providences of God that are meant to be ultimately a blessing to us, but we can't understand the full import of them. Friends, if we had all of our questions answered in once, 
in one bite, if that was true just of me, not just of all of us, but just of me, you would have to disqualify me as your pastor. I would be so conceited if I understood all of God and all of his plan that you wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, I'd be obliterated. And so God works via a process from eternity, working things out in time, and it's all good, but we have to walk through the chapters with him, knowing he's faithful, he's holy, he's eternal, and he is going to only continue to do good to us. This church walked through Luke's gospel together. And we saw that what Habakkuk needs to see in the next portion of the text in chapter 2. He says something that's quite interesting. He says, I'm going to go to my watchtower in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to get a perspective on things. So what is he doing? Habakkuk is pulling away from the problem. Here's, here's kind of the progression so far. The man sees Israel's issues, like the multitude of issues that's gone on for a while. They're perverting justice. God's covenant people, they're not faithful. And God's supposed to deal with this. And starts to bother Habakkuk. He prays about it, complains about it. God answers his complaint and says, I'm doing something about it. I'm going to send Chaldea to take care of you. And he's like, whoa, that's even worse. So how's that going to work? And then he realizes, wait, God is working from him for eternity. He's going to do good to him. He's going to shape him. He's going to shape him. That's good. That's good. But he's still, God, what about, I mean, really, Babylon? And it says that the Lord answers him. But in order for him to hear the answer, Habakkuk realizes now at this point he needs to back off. And he goes to his watchtower, it says, and he's going to hear what the Lord would say to him. Friends, whenever the lingering questions, even after you get some insight, still fill your mind, but they begin to really fill it, the Lord Jesus Christ himself would go away to a quiet place and he would pray sometimes all night. We saw that in Luke. And if you go back and look at those texts in Luke where Jesus steals away from everything to pray, he always comes back with either fresh power or fresh direction in his life. If something's just been sitting on you, some harassing providence, and you have gleaned insight, you've been diligent to pray and seek God's word and talk to your elders and Talk to uh, your spouse if you're walking through life with a spouse in Christ. And you're like, I, I, I think I've gleaned more. I think I have grown, but I still, it's just so burdened. Maybe it's time to break away and retreat like Jesus did. And get your head out of the problem. And get your head quietly before the Lord and know that there's more from him. I love how Habakkuk, he, he, his faith, notice how it's, it's, it's compulsed to go on here. It's compelled to go on. He doesn't ever become apostate. He sees these hard things and he asks these hard questions, but then he gets an answer from the Lord that gives him some information, but then he moves on and he says, you know what? This part of God's information distresses me. I'm going to ask again. I'm going to be reverent again, but I'm going to wait. And he says, I'm going to wait. And then the Lord answers him. It's an ongoing dialogue. And God says this, write the vision. Make it plain on tables. Tablets, so that he who runs may read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, and it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And here's the kind of the end, end game here with Habakkuk in this text. Is he gets insight from the Lord. He has remaining questions. Those kind of pile up and burn at the forefront of his mind. So he steals away, goes to the Lord in private prayer, shuts his door, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 6 shut your door, pray, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. 
And that's exactly what happens here. He goes to his watchtower and the Lord does give him an answer. And what's the answer? God says, hey, there's a vision coming, so write it down, make it plain. Why? So that people can read it and publish it. Friends, I, I promise you that according to the word of God, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 1, whatever distressing peril and pain is in your life is for the edification and salvation of others. The Lord Jesus Christ, all of the pain that was in his life was for the sake of the salvation of God's elect. What did Paul say in his ministry? I endure everything for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's what he said. 2 Corinthians 1 says, if we are, if we are given suffering and, and, and comfort from Christ, we are given that for the sake of comforting others who go through the same peril that we went through. And so ultimately, when you see and experience the faithfulness of God in the midst of your pain, as God works you through this process that I've tediously walked you through this morning, you're going to see that the tediousness of that process ends in edification that you can publish to others all around you so that they are greatly edified. And so we see that's the end game here. God is working intimately in this prophet's life. But he's not working in the prophet's life just for the sake of the prophet. He's going to give this man a testimony to publish. It's going to be the blessing of many people. I think this is glorious. And I think these are very practical matters in the Christian life. So let's meditate upon them this week and ask God to bless them to our souls. Father, I thank you again for my hearers this morning. I thank you for their patience with me. I thank you for their uh, attendance to your word. And I thank you that you have given us this moment to think upon the profundity of your work in our lives and how it's to lead to blessings lord and i pray that you give us wisdom when to ask you for what and wisdom for the things that we ask about and then i ask that you would also help us to realize when we need to like jesus and like habakkuk get alone and be with you in your word expressly to put everything else on pause to seek you and to come out of that time of seeking with wisdom that's going to be for the healing of others' brokenness around us. And all of this done in the context of knowing who you are to us. That you will, as you've promised in the covenant, never stop doing us good. That you have us in your sovereign hand. That you love us. But that your love is so committed to our future glorification that you will stop at nothing to rid us of sin to make us like Christ and to give us the grace to endure and to make us a blessing in and through him and we thank you for it in Jesus name amen